<laughs> and take two. Welcome to Something to Do, a podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and devotion of two of our favorite bands, Husker Du and their replacements. Each episode, we'll be nerding out about all aspects of two of the most influential bands in the pantheon of American rock acts. I'm Jude, and this is my co-host, Greg. How's it going, Greg? It's going pretty well. Good to, good to talk to you today, and uh, this is an exciting one, I think, for both of us, and probably for most fans of these bands, I would think. Yeah, yeah, this is... Today, today, well, today we are talking about uh, The Replacements, 1985 Sire Records debut, Tim. Huge record. Yeah, definitely. Huge record for them, and huge record for me and for you, yeah. and I'm going to think for, you know, a lot of a lot of people. Um, also a huge a record one. for my friend, Tim, who's later going to be on the podcast. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. It, it, and, um, you know, it's, it's a major label debut. That's always a big thing, especially back then. Mm-hmm. So, and we'll touch on that. So I guess first we'll, we'll do some, uh, what's new. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, as you noticed, there was a little bit of a time between episodes. Um, one is that we, we were so excited about the Bob Meir episode. We kind of wanted to let people have a chance to, you know, absorb that because I don't know about you, Jude, but I thought that was awesome. I know. I'm still like high off that interview. Yeah. And I, I was just like, you know, we can't, can't really top that. So <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping we can someday. Right. But it's going to be anti-climax from here on out. From- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so we just kind of thought like, we'll let, we'll let it breathe a little bit, but also we're now just because of, you know, scheduling with work and other podcast commitments and stuff, we'll be doing this every other week. So we plan to have um, these out every other Monday, Lord Mm -hmm. willing. Um, So we'll make sure that they're filled with nice content so that, you know, it's not a, it's not a waste of your time, you know, and you won't necessarily mind waiting a little bit. Um, and, you know, that could eventually change too. But for right now, for the distant, near distant future, um, we're just going to be doing a, would it be, do we call that bi-weekly or bi-month? I guess technically it's bi-monthly, right? Uh, yeah. Because bi- bi-weekly would be twice a week. Yeah, I think bi-weekly is one of those complicated grammatical things but like a lot of people be like oh this magazine comes bi-weekly but it's every other week but yeah i digress so (laughs) um there is some news uh that we've already spoken about before but just a reminder that for fans of the podcast we got a big couple weeks coming um so by the time this goes up you only have a couple weeks left until the new bob mould album can't wait those singles um, are awesome. I know. I can't wait to hear the whole thing. Um, and that'll be on out September 25th. It's a Friday on Merge Records in the U.S. And I forget where overseas, but um, can't wait for that one. And then the next day, Saturday, is the second of three Record Store Day drops. So we get the replacements um, incarcerated. Mm-hmm. the the live uh triple album you know that was f- the was on the cd for dead man's pop yeah but they're they're putting it out separate so for vinyl enthusiasts like like us that's going to be a, a a mandatory purchase so yeah. make sure you go to your local indie record store 
to get that. And same thing with Blue Hearts, wherever you can get it either from the band or from an indie store. Yeah. You know, do that. Um, and then you think, okay, that's it. No, there's more. Yeah, it's um, an action-packed month, man. Yeah, October 2nd. So that would be the following Friday from Blue Hearts. Uh, Bob Mould's box set comes out that we spoke about last time. Uh, so there's the you know enormous uh, CD box set. And then yeah. uh, the vinyl is going to be eight LPs. And that's four, like periodic, right? Right, in four drops. I think this one's 89 to 95. It includes sugar. Um, it yeah. includes all this other stuff. So pretty excited just to take a look at that and the liner notes and everything. Yeah. Um, and then after that, a week later on Friday the 9th is the um, Please to Meet Me uh, mm-hmm. deluxe edition um, that, you know, we talked about with Bob Mayer where there's you know, a package with a shirt, a placemat. Yeah. All this cool stuff. Yeah, we were we uh we were trying to will replacements merch into being there. I know. <laughs> I saw they they put up so they did put up some merch. I don't know if it's up still, but it was just leftovers. It was like a a girl shirt. Awesome. <laughs> and it was I want to say like only in one size and they put up two hats. Okay. But I think they were, they might've been fitted hats. And I was like, I don't know my head size. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm hoping. Well, if it they, doesn't fit, you just got to flex your head. That's all you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> and then, um, you know, they had um, the merch that comes with this box set, but I, I'm hoping that they put up, some more like you know, t-shirts and posters yeah. and things like that. So hopefully, you know, like we said, we willed it into, into being with, when we talked with Bob. Yeah. Stranger things have happened, right? Yeah. And then finally at the end of the month, uh, the last Saturday in October, um, Bob Mould's circle of friends live uh, vinyl for record store day. That'll be yeah. the third drop. So it's a, it's a hard month for my wallet. Yeah, and but a great month for my record collection. Exactly, and a great month for my ears. So yeah, be on the lookout. So, what's the other news that came up this week, Jude? Yeah, so um, so last episode we talked with Bob Mayer. If you haven't yet had a chance to listen to that one, I'd encourage you to check it out. He had some amazing insight about just his experience, like getting to know the members of the band and researching that book meticulously over the course of years. One of the questions we asked him was about whether or not the film or the movie was going to be adapted to a film, whether it would be, you know, a biopic. The book. The book. The book, the book excuse me. The book. <laughs> We're going to turn this movie into a film. <laughs> a, a major motion picture. It's like a, like a uh, spinal tap. Like, a, tonight we're going to rock you tonight. Um, <laughs> Um, whether they're going to turn the book into a film, either a, you know, a dramatized biopic or, um, you know, we did ask him about a documentary um, and he didn't really tip his hand too much. It sounded like, you know, it wasn't going to happen and there had been some talks. Um, but turns out some news after that interview, um, it is going to happen. Um, did you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, well, first off, I mean, 
in reading Trouble Boys, this definitely makes for a great story. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a delicate topic, I think, for people um, because these kind of movies are often scrutinized by, you know, overzealous fans. Um, and, you know, there can be some fabrication and stuff and then people get bent out of shape. But I've seen a couple that are, that are good. Like um, I thought the Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson one mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. with uh, John Cusack and Paul Dano. I thought that was really good. I think, I think it depends on the actors and who's helping with the treatment. And, and if, I mean, if Bob Meir is helping with this, it's going to be good. Yeah. Like it's going to be factual. It's, it's not going to have like fluff in it. Um, you know, I also liked um, the Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Like it's just a, it's just fun. Um, I don't know how fun this story is. Right. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's interesting. And I've, I've also seen some terrible, is it biopic or biopic? That's a very interesting question. I feel like maybe it's one of those things, tomato, tomato. I don't know. Yeah. But I'm going to say bio, bio. I'm going to say yeah. biopic since you said biopic. And then yeah, that way at like least a, one of us is right. Yeah. It's like a pronunciation issue. Like, is it like Unless we're, Yeah. Yeah. Like, is it pronounced like Donald Trump or is it pronounced like unbelievably racist asshole? Like, <laughs> I never get it right. <laughs> well, unless we're both wrong and it's like, biopic <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, yeah the it, it is a, a delicate um uh, genre for sure i'm thinking of like not necessarily about a musician um but it was about an interview that was done for rolling stone um the uh david foster wallace biopic or biopic or <laughs> depending on your pronunciation or biopic biopic right um about the david foster wallace interview in rolling stone around the time of infinite jest i think the movie was called end of tour if i'm remembering correctly um i huge david foster wallace fan huge fan of infinite jest i watched it you know i enjoyed it um i thought there was some cool elements to it um but you know there was uh uh, I would say a complicated response by viewers of the film. Yeah. And that happens like, like for instance, like I saw there was that Morrissey one mm. where it was like his life leading up to the Smiths. And I thought that was pretty bad. Mm. Um, I, I mean, first of all, whatever you think of Morrissey aside, um, I don't really care about his life before the Smiths. Yeah. <laughs> like I know enough from reading so, but again, that's, that's about subject matter. That's not even necessarily like a, a slight at who wrote the script. I mean, they're doing what they can do with what they have, Yeah. but this is at least an interesting story, but they have, so the director is uh, named uh, Josh Boone and he, uh, I guess he was speaking about a new X-Men spinoff, the new mutants. And they asked him, what are you doing in the future? Yeah. And uh, he, he says, quote, when we were shooting the new mutants, I started working on with uh, Nate Lee co-writer. We started working on an adaptation of Bob Mayer's New York times bestseller trouble boys. He wrote troubled boys. I don't know if that was a magazine or whatever uh, about the band, the replacements uh, Boone said before revealing who would play the band's lead singer. So it's uh, Nat Wolf, 
which I don't know this actor, but he was in The Stand, the miniseries, uh, I guess the new one. Um, He's been in, I guess, a couple of this guy's movies. And then they have a uh, casting for Tommy, uh, another person from The Stand, uh, Owen Teague. And he'll be playing Tommy Stinson in the second half of the movie. Because in the first half, you know, Tommy's so young. He's so, kid, yeah. Um, so, hey, our friend, yeah. We'll see. Definitely going to watch it. Excited about it. Yeah. My friend, uh, uh, friend of the pod, Justin Lore, host of, co-host of the uh, horror-themed and very awesome podcast, Horror Business, is probably very familiar with both of those actors and is probably shaking our head, his head at us right now for not knowing who they yeah, are. I know. I'll have to ask him. King guy. I was talking about, talk to him about the stand in particular. Yeah, I'll have to ask him what he thinks about, uh, you know, this casting. Because, again, these are tough. They're tough. I, I wish yeah. them the best of luck, and I will watch it. You know, if, it's, if movie theaters are a thing, by the time this comes out, we can go to the movie theater. I'll go to the movie theater and, you know, have some popcorn and mm. watch Trouble Boys the movie. So that sounds look at amazing. Yeah. yeah. I love popcorn. Um, so I guess finally, just thank you everybody again for all the support. Um, you know, this is just a labor of love for us. We're not making any money or anything like that. So if you want, you can certainly go on to uh, you know, your podcast method of choice. Make sure you subscribe. If there's an option to rate, give us a good rating, write a nice review. Uh, it means a lot. Yeah, it really does. Um, we really appreciate it. And then finally, do you remember section for corrections? Spelled D-U, uh, just for extra do. <laughs> eagle-eared listener, Matt Berliant. <laughs> always, always able to, uh, you know, let us know when we get a piece of this uh, minutia wrong. And thank you for listening, Matt. <laughs> yes, thank you, Matt. Shout out um, to Matt. Uh, he noted that when we talked with Bob Mayer and we mentioned Jack Rabbit's radio show, that it was actually not a radio show. He was just like DJing um, for a uh, like a, a punk show, like it might have been the replacements, you know, after show. He said it was either Gildersleeves or um, possibly Seabees. Uh, you know, we believe it was the first time they came. To New York, actually. So, um, gotcha. yeah. So, and and when Jack put on uh, Hootenanny, he said that uh, you know beer was thrown at him, uh, and I think it ruined one of his records. Dang. Matt knows Matt knows the name and pressing of the record. I, I I'm trying to find the text message, yeah. but <laughs> he and I talk often, so it's it's too far back. I should have been prepared, but basically, <laughs> it was uh it was just a show, and Jack was. DJing and uh, we hope to have Jack on here too to talk uh, to talk about Husker Du because he you know this story was actually uh, told in the Color Me Obsessed documentary so yeah. I'd love to hear him talk about Husker Du but so that's really it so let's get on to the album Tim yeah. all right let's talk about like you know a little bit about like our personal background with the album um, how about you Greg so this is one of the ones that I just knew this and let it be were the two that I just knew of for years before mm-hmm. I was a fan. 
um, you know, knowing that it's a major label debut. I knew Bastards of Young just because it's Bastards of Young. Right. And when I bought the two CDs at that time, I bought Let It Be and Tim. The first one I put on was Tim because I was just like, ah, oh, it's the major label debut. It's probably going to be a little more spit shined. Let's hear what they got. I, you know, I knew Bastards of Young was on it. And uh, it immediately clicked. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I So this and Let It Be, um, obviously released a year apart, um, kind of came into my awareness just right around the same time. And for one reason or another, I put on Let It Be first, and that was the one that just, like, stayed in my CD player the whole time. Like, I, like, I liked this record a lot the first time I heard it, but um, Let It Be was just, like, th- that was just where I was at the time. Um, but so a couple years later, when I finished graduate school, I, this record just like really, really clicked for me. The songs hold my life and swing and party were just like the soundtrack to being 25. Um, just particularly the hold my life, like where, where I was at the time I had just kind of, you know, finished this like really difficult thing and had come out of school and was like kind of trying to figure out what the heck I was trying to do with my life. So it, um, it really spoke to me, you know, which was one of the things that I make, I think makes the replacements a great band is that they're able to tap into something like that. Um, and uh, then I later, I was always like, what's up with the razzle dazzle line. And then I later in read in trouble boys that um, Paul ad libbed a bunch of the lyrics and, and I was honestly a little bit bummed, but I'll save some of that about um, the song itself and the lyrics till we get to the track by track. Yeah. Um, so little background as we always do we like to lead into the record let it be their final album on twin although at the time you know they didn't necessarily the outside world didn't know this was their final one on twin tone comes out october 84 Uh, critical acclaim you know people really into it for the most part uh there was that scathing steve albini review where he basically wished paul westerberg dead um sounds pretty steve albini <laughs> yeah and you know even though and they got the rolling stone review uh that mm-hmm. sal canestra mentioned in his interview which that, was actually what got sal to listen to the band like at all like the first yeah time. and i guarantee he's not the only one yeah so funny enough all this is happening in the band and especially Westerberg, they're, they're almost oblivious to the success of the album. Like they just think, okay, we put out another record. We think it's good. Um, and you know, there was an interesting note and it kind of reminded me of, uh, what you hear a couple years later with Kurt Cobain, Mm. where his girlfriend at the time, Lori Beiser said that he was very conscious of not selling out. This is Paul. Yeah. You know, very conscious of not appearing to just bow down to the man, but he still wanted to be successful. Right. Like he wanted to walk that, you know, he, he wanted to, I guess what it'd be like, he wanted to have his cake and eat it too. Yeah. Well, right? what's the, I mean, what's the, the quote from the first interview with him, like the very first replacements interview, we want to be famous without being professional. We want to be a cult. You know, it seemed like yeah. that that element was sort of always, you know, hovering in the background. And you and see, let's, that. let's be real. That's like, 
that's a, a, not a bad way to be where you no. keep your integrity intact. Everybody's, you know, praises you and nobody's thinking you're doing something for the wrong reasons, but you're still reaching a wide audience. Yeah, exactly. It's just kind of weird for, you know, to me, that seems almost more like a who's do mindset of like, we don't want to, you know, replacements. It was just weird to hear him, you know, sort of finding that he was a bit guarded in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't want to, I'm, I'm kind of cutting to the next segment a little bit, but I mean, the God would a mess on a ladder of success line. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was, he was definitely very self-aware. Yeah. So December 84, they have uh, a feature. They're on the cover of the village voice, uh, which was, you know, a big deal back then. Yeah. Written by RJ Smith. He was like a, you know, rock, rock writer for the voice. And it really kind of told the whole story of the replacements and their dysfunction. And the band wasn't too thrilled about the, the article because it kind of held a mirror to them. Hmm. And, you know, a lot of people, when they have issues, they don't want to have them held up in their face. But at the same time, it was pretty truthful. Um, it was also the worst selling issue that year <laughs> <laughs> that they like to point out. Um, or th- th- that uh, I think the voice would point out to RJ and say, like, you know, this was the worst selling issue of 1984. But the album still did well on the Village Voice um, has and job poll at the end of the year. I want to say it was like fourth behind maybe Prince and Bruce Springsteen or something. Like it was it like they beat out REM and Husker Du. Big deal. Yeah. In nineteen eighty nineteen eighty four was a great year for music. Yeah. So it's also the year I was born. That's a great year for all kinds of things. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's true. So isn't it kind of nuts to think you were like not even a year old all this is going on. I know this whole world of stuff existed and we were just like amorphous blobs. Yeah. Um, that's, that's cool. It was the, the worst selling issue of that year. I don't want to go on too, too long of a digression, but Greg and I used to play in a band that was at, at one point by a then famous message board. We were deemed the ugliest band in hardcore. Yeah. Like sometimes it's a, point a badge. of pride. A, yeah. A badge of honor. Like sheer terror, ugly and proud. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to sheer terror. Mm-hmm. I know Matt Reliance stoked. He's a big Sheer Terror fan. So they play CB. So as things are picking up, labels are, major labels are paying attention. So they play at CBGB, uh, a secret show, before their actual New York show for this cycle. So they play C- 1984 uh, which is that's my dad's birthday so th- that was his 32nd birthday to put Exciting. things in perspective um, and they play under the name Gary and the Boners so one of the things I want to say it was maybe Peter Jesperson talks about in Trouble Boys is that once they knew that people were there to see them and that it was a big deal you almost couldn't let on because they would like throw the gig right and indeed they threw this one. It was like, it was like fabulous style. Yeah. I think it was like, they played 43 songs, but only half of them were complete and maybe only a half a dozen were replacement songs. And they did a bunch of covers. So Gene Simmons from kiss walks in 
and uh, Jesperson was, I guess, you know, at the soundboard and they had something where you could, you know, broadcast to them. I don't know if Paul had in-ear monitors or, or I don't think he would have any, but somehow only he could hear basically they said, Hey, you know, the God of thunders here. So they break into just a terrible rendition of black diamond (laughs) and Gene Simmons walks out and the, and the legend is too, that all these label execs came and they're all excited uh, and their management, you know, had invited them. And as they're all walking out, they, he's, uh, and I forget who it was, but basically said it was like a funeral procession. They were all walking out. Like, we're, we're really sorry. (laughs) Like this was terrible. (laughs) And, but um, someone in their camp knew that, well, if this one was terrible, the next one that's at Irving Plaza, it's going to be great. Yeah. Because that's kind of how they would go. They'd have a really bad show and then they would, you know, come back after that because everybody wants to see this, you know, drunken mess, especially after the Village Voice story. Yeah. Because in the Village Voice, they talked about how they would do the do the drunk set or do the, you know, do the pussy set. Like they would play these like high, you know, high voltage punk shows and they would do like country songs. Yeah. The pussy set. Right. So Irving Plaza's, I think five days after Seabees, um, Seymour Stein of Sire records. I mean, this guy's incredible. Mm -hmm. Think of all the bands he signed, the Ramones, the talking heads, uh, the Smiths in the U.S., New Order in the U.S., mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Pesh Mode, like just so many incredible bands from the 70s and 80s. So he happens to be taken uh, to the Irving Plaza show by his lawyer. Basically, he's at a Christmas party and he's getting a little too loaded and the lawyer needs to get him out of there and stop drinking or he's going to drink himself to death. Mm. And he invites him to, you know, come to Irving Plaza. Let's watch the replacements. And Seymour Stein knew of the replacements. I think he, he even had a couple records and he thought it was decent. Um, and then, of course, he watches the band. They play one of the best sets they've ever played, supposedly. And he's, he's sold. He's like, I need to sign this band. So, you know, they, they don't sign then, which I always originally thought, oh, that he sees them and signs them. No, he... He's like, I have to talk to this band. I have to get them signed. Band goes home. Now, while they were at Seabees, there was one person who saw the set and thought it was incredible. Mm-hmm. And that was Alex Chilton. Yep. Because Alex Chilton is a lot like Paul. You know, he has that same kind of like loves messing with people. Um, and he just thought it was like brilliant. Like this is like performance art. Right. So he actually talks to their manager and says like, I want to record these guys. So they tell, um, they tell Paul, Paul is super excited. Right. And they go back to Minnesota in January and they record with Alex Chilton. They start Mm -hmm. laying some, some demos down just to feel things out. So at this point they're still not signed. Kind of weird, right? Like it's, right. Uh, I guess they were demoing. I don't know exactly what was going through their head. If they knew that like they were going to sign or, or what I, I'd, I'd have to, you know, look that over. But um, there, there is essentially a little bit, I guess, of a bidding war. Columbia records also wants to sign the band. Yeah. 
So it's between Columbia and Sire. And Sire. Columbia, I think, offers them one, a one record deal. And Sire offered two with an option for more. Plus, Paul liked the idea of Sire because it's kind of like a boutique label at that point. They had all like, you know, the, the 77 era punk bands right. and all that. They just fit in more. Columbia had like, you know, I don't, I don't even know what was on Columbia at the time. You think about the, yeah, you think about the Sire roster and you're like, oh, like it makes perfect sense. Right. Like, it's just like, you know, to be on the same label as the Ramones, which we'll get to in a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all those bands, uh, it just made sense. So they signed to Sire for $125,000 advance for the first album, then double for the second. But yeah, that said, their main concern was having that creative control. And Warner Brothers, and specifically Sire, uh, was always kind of known for creative control. So it was, it was a great fit. Yeah, you got to think all those bands like Husker Du signed to Warner's for the same reason. REM right. signed to Warner's for the same reason. So it makes sense. Yeah. So one of the things I thought was funny about them signing, well, two things. One, their attorney uh, George Regis, he had to make an amendment to the contract because uh, the contract said, "quote The artist will seriously pursue its <laughs> career." And he actually crossed off seriously, <laughs> which if that's not classic replacements, I know, I don't really know. Um, it's just like, yeah, it makes me think of the, like the scene from the uh, opening credits to the Simpsons where like Bart gets punished and has to write something on the board like 50 times. Like, <laughs> yeah, I will. The artist will seriously pursue its career and it's just crossed off. I thought that was like pretty funny. Um, and then also, this is really funny. Uh, Paul and Chris sign each other's names. That was kind of a way to like sort of, if needed to like have like a way to try to get out of the contract. Because he said they could swear to God that they didn't sign their name. Yeah. He could be like, no, I didn't sign my name and, and not be lying. Yeah. Um, that plausible deniability. So... So they signed each other's names, which is really funny. So, so they're also in debt. So yeah, they get this advance. They're like, oh, but um, that's why it's called an advance. Exactly. And a lot of bands, you know, apparently, especially back then, didn't really know that, and they would get in a precarious spot. So they they saw so little money up front, and Paul was quoted as saying. This is from Trouble Boys. He said, after paying off our lawyers, friends, the paternity suits, the abortions, we should end up with a thousand bucks a piece about. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like classic, classic Paul quote. Mm -hmm. So they do sign to Sire in April 85 while they're on a West Coast tour, uh, like a little West Coast run. And Sire liked the Chilton demos. But they, they never considered him as a serious contender for a producer. Like yeah. they just thought like, okay, these are demos. That's cool. Um, but he's not going to be the producer. So they have a list and eventually gets narrowed down to uh, Tommy Ardelli, the late, great Tommy Ramone. Mm -hmm. uh, they record in Minnesota with him, with Steve Fjellstead engineering again, at Nicolette. Mm -hmm. uh, they start recording in June of 85. So I was talking to, to Jude before we started recording and um, 
I was saying how it's crazy back then how quick stuff was released. Yeah. Like you think about things like just the general gears of creation and production and dissemination moving more quickly now in 2020. Um, but I mean, this and let it be are exactly a year apart. Right. And they're, rec- they're recording this in June of 85 and it comes out in October. Yeah. That's so it's, fast. It's fresh. Yeah. Cause I think sometimes a lot of stuff comes out and you know, it, by the time it's released, it's almost like it's old news to the band. Yeah. And this was, wasn't finished until later in the summer. So that's, that's, it's interesting to me. I, I don't know. I guess it's too, because of the fact that um, record were the main, so there were many more record plants for pressing too, I think. True, true. Like that could be a part of it. Because yeah. now there's not nearly as many places that press vinyl. So stuff gets kind of, uh, you know, put on the back burner. Yeah. You know, so that, that's, that's at least what I'm thinking. If someone knows why stuff came out quicker then than it does now, hit us up. Because um, I don't I wonder, know. Yeah. I wonder if it's just because, like, the whole, the whole, like, system apparatus, like, was set up for, like, this one form of media, basically. Right? So it's like... I don't yeah. know, you hear stories about how, like, I mean, different scene, but like Motown records would be like recorded during people's lunch breaks and stuff. True, and then it would just be immediately like pop, you know, popped up uh, in the record store very shortly after. Yeah, that could be too. It, it just it, what a cool time, you know. Yeah. Like I was only four years old in, in 1985, so unfortunately, yeah. I didn't get to. Um, well, I was one, but I was still like kind of going to cool record stores. <laughs> I hate parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I definitely wasn't. <laughs> so uh, they record June '85, and this is really, I think, again, Paul further blossoming as a songwriter. Like he was coming with fully realized songs. Yeah. Instead of these skeletal songs, he was coming with full songs and basically, I'm like, this is how the song goes. This is how you play. And um. He modeled, here's another Who connection. I feel like they're mentioned often too. Uh, he, he basically modeled you know, several of the songs after like the Who style where there's two bars of guitar and then the band comes in. So the songs like Left of the Dial, yeah. Bastards of Young, Little Mascara, mm-hmm. they were all written in that style. So some of the lyrics were written, he said, a week before recording, ad-libbed like we talked right. about yeah. with Hold My Life. Um, and then Bob... This was really when even more cracks with Bob were starting to show and he wasn't really able to find his place for the songs. And they talk about how he came in at the end and tracked his guitar leads, but he was just kind of really drunk or high most of the time. And he was still working. So here's this band there on a major label. Mama Rosa, right? Yeah, he's working at like a pizza shop or something as a chef. Right. And then coming uh, at night to record. And, you know, the whole thing was with Bob. When you read about Bob, what about Bob? Uh, he <laughs> A vacation from my problems. Yeah. He was fine with just playing the entry. Like, he was fine with just being a band that, you know, never got bigger than they, than they were and just played to a packed small club. Yeah. And there's something cool about that, you know. There's yeah. something. But so the whole idea of, like, signing to the major label and – 
you know, doing all this stuff and working with producers and that wasn't really, that wasn't him, you know, he was an authentic guy. So, uh, but to kind of satisfy Bob, um, Paul wrote a couple like simple rockers that we'll talk about when we, uh, go through the track listing. And, uh, so the album's totally finished by July of 85 and comes out in October. And then of course they play, you know, a bunch of shows in Minnesota. Like I think they play five nights at first Avenue or something, Mm. uh, in October 85. And then of course there's Saturday night live in January and they make a video for bastards of young. And this is like supposed to be their big break. So yeah. We will now move on to the tracks. So I'm going to start with you. Hold My yeah. Life, the track. lead-off track. It's just such a – it's like this is one of the greatest opening tracks. I mean, I shared earlier, like this was kind of what um, hooked me on the record. Um, I got to share, though, I was a little bit bummed about when I learned that some of the lyrics were ad-libbed. Um, you can kind of tell it. I mean, like the – the razzle dazzle line was always, I was always like, what the heck's he talking about there? <laughs> um, especially cause Paul's such a big lyrics guy. Um, but yeah, I mean, what a great opening track. Yeah, no, it, it is. That was, that was the one you gotta think I put the CD in. That was the first one I heard. I mean, the chorus is so good mm-hmm. that I don't even care about the ad libbed <laughs> verses yeah. because the chorus is the whole feel of the song. And it's one of those things where even if you can't understand the lyrics, the way that he wrote the song, the way he performed, you can feel the, the, the emotion and the point of it. Yeah. So to, to contradict myself for a second, I think about like a contemporary band and song, um, a song like Radio Free Europe, like obviously like the first song off R- the R.E.M., is murmur right yeah 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 um i always mix murmur and reckoning in my head or always. but anyway so you know what are the lyrics about in that song like you know what i mean it doesn't what it's still like a really great song a yeah really powerful because the bottom line is you're gonna hum the chorus of this song yeah after you hear it right you're not gonna forget it after one listen yeah and i mean hold my life until i'm ready to use it that's a great lyric i know i know you know so i love this one um I think that it just works. And, you know, it is one of those songs. I know Sal uh, mentioned before, not on the podcast, but just in in conversation that this song and Unsatisfied are like a great chorus, but in search of a verse. And I do see that too. Like, I see that. They were kind of like, we wrote this great chorus. We don't need a verse. Yeah. But, you know. It is what it is, but it's a great song. Yeah. So next we have All By. What are your thoughts on this one, Greg? I feel like this one sounds almost like it could have been on Hoot and Annie. I could see that. I could see like that. Like it has that little, like the, the, the beat, the, was it jaunty or whatever kind of beat? Mm-hmm. Like it just, to me, it would have fit, you know, strip down the production a little bit. Not that it's overproduced, but strip down the production. It sounds like, you know, Hoot and Annie track. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally could hear that. I so when I first heard the song without having like done any research many years ago, um, it made me think of the Roy Orbison song "Anything You Want." 
Um, but that was actually a couple years later. Um, so Roy Orbison's Anything You Want was 89. Um, and this was obviously 85. Um, it is a great song. I totally hear what you're saying about it sounding like it could be on Hootenanny. Um, I didn't catch it before, but I did notice the problematic lyric in the yeah, song. <laughs> Movies are for blank, like me and Maybelline. But then you think like it was 1985. You know, like yeah, it's, you it's put it in context, and yeah, the, yeah. We we had. I'm not this, apologizing for it, right? But no, uh, and he shouldn't even have to apologize for it. I don't think it's back then. You know, like like same thing with you know on where it went. We were talking about that YDL track, right? And you know, even something we didn't mention when we talked about the Gorilla Biscuits record also uses that word. Yep, exactly. Um, you know, for, for mentally challenged, the unfortunate synonym for mentally challenged it yeah. shouldn't be used now but back yeah. then it was it was used a lot so you can't the, i guess my point is you can't look at 1985 through a 2020 lens yeah and uh it's it's sometimes tough for people to see things that way and you know even though i was only four in 85 this kind of mentality i think continued later into the 80s and in the 90s and you watch movies and stuff and you see it and people learn and they know and if they were doing it now they wouldn't you know say these words so yeah yeah it is interesting like i kind of forget about that line too and then i hear it and i'm like oh yeah 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 i mean even up until any i remember when i was um uh, younger, my parents would play Ben Folds Five a lot, and there was a like a Ben Folds Five B side record that came out in the '90s, obviously. And I'm confident that they had a song that was titled that word. Um, yeah. So, like, you know, I mean, this is like yeah. Weston as well. Weston, yeah. the yeah the '90s pop Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania area pop punk band that you know. J- James Alex went on to beach slang. Mm-hmm. They had a song called that. And it's, yeah, it's a catchy connection. song, but it feels, it does feel, yeah, there, there's a little bit of replacements kind of love connection, but it does feel weird. But again, I try to tell myself, you know, this is 1985, 1995. It's, it's just different. Yeah. So we won't, so, basically what we're saying is we're not going to cancel Paul Westerberg. No, not because of this anyway. <laughs> we love Um, you paul yeah if anyone knows paul tell him we love him please (laughs) so next we have kiss me on the bus what do you think about this one this is like such a great working class love song in my mind um there's a richard pryor um about you know i think it's richard pryor any comedy fans call me out um but that comedians are funnier when they're riding the bus um you know, I personally love public transportation. I won't go off on too long of a rant, but one of the not being able to ride public transportation right now because of the pandemic that we're living in in 2020 is a, actually a challenge for me. Um, so, but anyway, Kiss Me on the Bus, I love it. It's got like such a classic Westerberg, like kind of grammar humor, like in the title, right? Um, you know, where you assume that the um, object of the preposition on is going to be a part of his body, um, or at least I always did. Um, also, the your tongue, your transfer, your hand, your answer, um, that kind of like sw- switching up of the um, uh, object of that. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I love um, it. It's a, it's a classic Paul song, as we often bring up. 
Uh, it's they played it on Saturday Night Live. That was the other song they played, mm-hmm. a ripping version of it. Which the demo with that they recorded originally um, for this song might even be superior to the, yeah. the the studio one, which is is rare. But the demo one has this. It's a little more uh, urgent, a little more yeah. punk energy. And it's just great, but it's just a great song nonetheless. Great guitar solo. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it. Yeah. So then Dose of Thunder. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, Go ahead, Greg. I, I, I wrote, you know, this is the shooting dirty pool of this album. It's not yeah. bad. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be like, I hate this and skip it, but it's just, it's clearly a song written to placate Bob, right? Would that yeah. be the right word? Placate? Yeah. Yeah, it, a total like kind of proto GNR type, like, you know, like my notes are like, is this like kind of like a cock rock song? <laughs> it's a cool song. I, I agree. It's definitely not, it's not the one that I think of when I think it's of it. It's a Bob song. It was, it's yeah. like a glammy, you know, mm-hmm. dirty rock song. It's, it's, yeah. it's Bob. Do you have anything else on this one? Oh, yeah. Well, just kind of thinking how, like, you know, we've talked about it on this podcast, but often, um, um, folks frame the Matt's influence on Nirvana as being sort of like, you know, the Matt's having like uh, paved the way for a band like Nirvana to kind of like mainstream eyes, like, um, like kind of loser rock. But I think this song stands out as one that's like kind of different. I think Nirvana was kind of pushing back against this sort of like these kinds of vibes in rock and roll music. Not, you yeah. know, I, they hated Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Or at least Kurt did. See, I think a lot of it is like, Kurt did because Dave Grohl deep down is like a rocker. Like yeah. he likes, you know, he liked Guns N' Roses. I'm sure he would secretly play like Appetite for Destruction on his Walkman, <laughs> you know, because he was in a metal and rock mm-hmm. and you know, obviously punk and hardcore too. The the thing that always you, know, you bring up Nirvana, and it 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 was crazy to me to find out that Kurt Cobain wasn't a fan of the replacements or. And I don't know about Husker Du, like, but I know that I saw something. He was like, you know, I never really got into those Minneapolis bands, Soul Asylum, yeah, uh, replacements. It was, if anything, that was Courtney Love. To her credit, she she was into all that stuff, replacements, hmm. uh, Husker Du, Soul Asylum, yeah. So, um, it's just weird because it seems like not that, not that they sound like the replacements but it's the same feeling of like, Hey, we're taking punk and we're going to make it catchy, but like smart. Right. Yeah. And I mean, early, you know, earlier on this episode, we were talking about how um, Paul, like Kurt was very conscientious about sort of the idea of selling out, you know, and like what that would mean. And like, and definitely something that was like really present on, um, uh, you know, Nirvana's mind throughout their career. But the other thing too, is like we talked about in the Bob Meir interview, like, and you know, he talks about in Trouble Boys, but Nirvana broke six months after the replacements, you know, and there, there is like, there is that kind of connection in like, you know, they were, like you said, like they were both kind of like coming out of like a kind of like punk sound and like moving. Right. Like indie label. Yeah. Not, not, uh, you know, both from kind of places that are stereotyped as being like dreary, you know, you have mm-hmm. Washington and you have Minneapolis and, you know, still coming from the punk scene, but take 
Um, you know, cause I remember there was always that, like, there's that sound bite of Chris Robinson from the black crows, like talking about Nirvana. And he's like, yeah, it's nice little replacements record you have there. Like talking about Nevermind, but I don't hear it. Like Sliver, could that maybe be a replacement song? I could like, hear that. I could hear I can that. maybe, but you know, that's, it's just, it was just weird to me to find out he didn't like them because I don't know if he disliked them, but that he wasn't a fan. Yeah. Like later on. So next up we have Waitress in the Sky. So Waitress in the Sky, good song, funny. You know, Paul wrote it uh, about his sister. His sister was a uh, flight attendant and would tell him all these, you know, stories about unruly customers and how they would quote unquote accidentally end up spilling their drink on this, on the person. Like, Oh, sorry, sir. Um, And just like, (laughs) be nice to those in the service industry, especially now. It's a tough job. I I was, you know, worked in retail and was a waiter. Um, You got to be nice to these people. Yeah. Tip tip (laughs) your servers folks. Yeah. But but it's, it's, it's a great song. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, Don't be a dickhead to your, to your flight attendant. Um, I, yeah, other than that, just this was this is my my flying anthem. I I mean I don't behave like the uh, behavior described in the song at all. Anybody who knows me, but um, good song to listen to on a plane. I flew a couple of years ago to Minneapolis for a writing conference, and I got a chance to stop by Seventh um, Street Entry. Um, it's a cool, awesome, iconic venue. Um, but uh, yeah, you'll have to share those. We'll have to share those pictures on the um, on the Instagram. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but um, I definitely listen to this song on the trip out there. You have to. It's like obligatory. Yeah. Oh, if I you know if I was going to Minneapolis, there there would be it would just be replacements and Husker Du and like Prince. Yeah. And uh, Soul Asylum. Soul Asylum. Yep. So next is Swinging Party. Yeah. So I was about very, this? I, so not that this is the only metric for a song's importance or popularity, but I was very surprised actually to learn that when you go on Spotify, this is currently the most streamed replacement song. It's got a little over 14 million listens. Um, yeah, that's, I, and I, I forget if I asked you or was this in a movie that we, we didn't know about, but I looked it up and I, I couldn't find anything yeah. like why this song, like it's not the first song on, on their most popular album or something right. like that, where it's like, oh, well, it's the most streamed because people check it out first. Like, I would have thought it would be Bastards of Young or Can Hardly Wait. Same, same. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a great song. I love it. It's one of my favorite songs on this album, but it's not the one that I think, like if when you tell me to think about the replacements, it's not the first song that jumps to mind. No, not at all. Not at all. But it's it's great. I love I love it too. I'm I'm very surprised it was the most streamed, like I love the lyrics, you know, bring yeah. your own lampshade somewhere. There's a party. Yeah. Um, it's just such a know, classic replacements message, like, you know, partying, shambling, but like you also kind of feel like alienated and like, you know, um, it's kind of like, I know I referenced him earlier on this episode, but um, uh, for uh, fans of the, novelist david foster wallace it's kind of like an infinite jest type message this sort of like american sadness of hedonism and endless opportunities um you know can be tragic and that's kind of what the song 
what I, the vibe. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like not a, you know, it's not the feel good hit of the summer. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So you know, I like it's a oh, go on. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, so like a kind of Paul esque like irony to the title. It's, it's not a swing or the party is swinging, but you're not having a swing in time. Right. Swing. Swing. <laughs> it's, um, I thought it was about swingers, like men and women that change partners. It's a swinging party. Um, well, Paul, Paul talked about how they would have a, this like communal walkman on their, in the van and like sort of pass around, like sort of like we would do, right? right? Yeah. Like, hey, check this out. And uh, he had this like Frank Sinatra, like really sad song. And then uh, Peter Jesperson played him might've been Neil Young or something. I forget, but the moral of the story is they were passing stuff back and forth. And this song was kind of like an emotion of, of that, of that whole vibe of those songs. And Paul basically was quoted as saying, like, if you steal from everyone, no one can pinpoint it. I like um, it. Yeah. So that was that. So up next. The, is the jam. Yep. Bastards a young man. So arguably the best math song. I mean, the lyrics are incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, Bob Mayer noted in Trouble Boys that Paul really labored over these lyrics. Like this wasn't a, I'm writing it a week before. Like there were several drafts. Um, I mean, it has the video. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, the most punk rock thing you could do <laughs> for a video. <laughs> like, well, we don't, we don't want to, uh, make a video but guess what we're gonna and we're gonna make it the most like simple you know a guy just putting a record on the turntable smoking a cigarette sitting on the sofa you don't even see his face mm -hmm. um just really cool i mean this song like i said it's an anthem yeah it's also played on the famed snl appearance that got them yes off the and show. it's a great version there too yeah one of the things that's neat about this one is the mis and misquoted lyrics yeah where everybody thinks he says we are the sons of no one which would make sense bastards right. of young but it's weighed on the sons of no one yeah um but i love the lyrics my my favorite set of lyrics uh on the on the record or on the song rather um which again this is like a song with so many good lyrics mm -hmm. it's hard to pick but the one that always gets me is the ones uh, we love know, best the one yes yeah. i just think that's amazing I know. the ones that love us best are the ones we'll lay to rest and visit their graves on holidays at best the ones that love us least are the ones we'll die to please if it's any consolation i don't begin yeah. to understand i mean if you do think about oh. it like we focus a lot of times on just negative energy and people just why doesn't this person like me? Why is this person? And these people don't, don't even care about you. I know. I, I don't even, I don't want to get too, too dorky, but I mean, I, I just like, I get chill. Like I get chills when you read those lines. Like, yeah. It's, I love it. It's, it's, that's, I mean, that's up there with top five Paul lyrics yeah, that he's ever written. Down. It's so identifiable and, and just great. Um, and it has the weird spliced in ending, but like, I can't imagine the ending any other way either. Yeah. Great song. Yep. So next we have Lay It Down Clown. So um, I know, so 
this there is some backstory to this that I'm blanking on, or I should have more um, uh, fully researched for this episode. But this song was kind of like a Bob diss. Is that right, Craig? I mean, it... yeah, it's so. This is funny. You ready? Okay. Um. So this is a Peter Buck. So Peter Buck apparently in oh, the dang. in that time was into speed. Okay. <laughs> he would carry around a sharp knife and like, you know, Paul, when you see him, lay it down, clown. Paul, Dead. lay it out. Let's, let's do some speed. All right, let's uh, party. This is, this is a total Bob song. Yeah. You know, like just, I think in, in, in message and in music. It's just. Yeah. Gotcha. Not too much else to say about it. It's fine. Yeah. So what's next? So next we got Left of the Dial. Um, such a great song, man. Um, kind of make the we want to be popular. It makes me think of the we want to be popular without being, um, or we want to be famous without being. I'm butchering the quote. I had it earlier. Um, <laughs> we want to be popular without being successful. There you go. We, we want to be, be a cult. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is like indie rock personified. Like exactly. even though, ironically, because it's it's on a major label, but the whole sentiment of just like left of the dial, where you know all this great music college radio at that time was a huge deal, uh, broke so many bands mm -hmm. and it's just like a tribute to that and a tribute to, um, to the whole, you know, Paul wrote it about um, the, someone from the band let's active that ended up joining uh, a band with Michael Stipe's sister or something like that. I, should have had my facts straight. So someone I'm sure will correct me, but yeah, it's a great song. Mm -hmm. So next we got Little Mascara. What are your thoughts, Greg? Little Mascara's, this should have been a hit single. It's a, yeah. I mean, 1985 and on the production, this would have been just a hit up there with, you know, any Tom Petty or, or Bruce Springsteen song. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it kicks in with that, like, you know, kind of raging, like guitar lead thing. That's I'm sure Bob, right. It's just like musically, it's like a kind of anthemic rock and roll song that you can totally hear like um, should be yeah. in like played right alongside like, you know, Tom Petty stuff. But. Right. Like I, 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 I was just thinking too, like this could totally go toe to toe with, with Tom Petty. Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. But like and lyrically, it's kind of about like pain and growing. It's just like such a classic replacement song. It is. It's uh, the second side of this record is really strong. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing is here comes a regular. Mm -hmm. So what a bummer of a call. Yeah. So there's um, this cartoon on the Cartoon Network. It was called the Regular Show, mm -hmm. and they use this song in an episode just like a depressing scene because it's honestly a downer of a song. I mean, yeah, it's, you, you tipped me off to that. It was years ago. I remember you sent me the, like the link for it. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like, um, the sequel to treatment bound almost. Right. Exactly. Funny. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's real and it's, you know, there's like, they even said like, like even Bob Stinson who usually wasn't huge into like these Paul ballads, he couldn't even like, he's like, it's, it's great. I can't, I can't discount the song. It's great. Yeah. Um, and I know George went who played Norm on Cheers. Cause he's got like kind of punk indie. Yeah. He was in, um, he was in color me obsessed 
and he mentioned how he always thought this was sort of a little bit of a tribute to the show Cheers that he was on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, this song is about Cheers if Cheers were a Eugene O'Neill play instead of a hilarious sitcom. Right. Like, it's it's the dark side of... Yeah, exactly. Of, you know, that, that drinking life, you know, because they're really into drinking. Right. Like, it's just such a great song. It's like... Yeah. You know. And obviously, like, you know, like, the wordplay on, like, regular, but, like, when we, in the Bob Meir interview, we, we kind of were talking some about, you know, how much do you make of the glorification of the drinking and like drugs and stuff the replacements would do. Um, and I think this song definitely reveals that it wasn't all just, you know, it wasn't all just glorification and partying and yeah. Like there was, there was some sadness to it. Yeah. It's a great song. And, and uh, I can't think of a better way to close the record. Yeah. Agreed. So, all right. So, favorite songs, Greg. I'm gonna have you go first. Really? Oh, you're gonna put me on the spot. So, <laughs> yeah. um, when I was 25, I would have said "Hold My Life," but I'm gonna have to pick "Bastards of Young." It's like it's the obvious answer, but it's the such a great song. It is, and like my take was, I actually told myself I'm not going to pick "Bastards of Young." Just, just cause, like I guess, to be that guy. Good. Um, there's so many great songs on here. Like I said, there's probably like what's an 11 song LP, and like seven of the songs are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, seven or eight, I, I can't count. So I'm going to vote for "Kiss Me on the Bus." Good answer. Um, so basically, we just voted for the Saturday Night Live set, <laughs> but "Kiss Me on the Bus." But I, I'm gonna be a, a nitpicker. Yeah, here. you are. Do and it. I'm gonna say that when you put the mix up on Spotify, put the demo version. We'll do. So the because the demo version I think is just it's it's great. I would love to have heard some of these other songs through that, you know, done in that with that urgency. Yeah. So cool. that's it for this week. Um Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And again, thank you for being patient with us. We're looking forward to you joining us on our future explorations of uh, this essential Midwestern punk. Uh, So we're taking another detour for Mm -hmm. episode 13. This is one that I think will will be fun. Uh, So, you know, we we had talked about in in the beginning of doing this podcast that we're going to, you know, stick to the canon of the bands and have the interviews, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we're also going to do, you know, directly related, yeah. you know, either side projects, production, whatever, you know, just whatever we decide to keep it fun. Yeah. And um, for episode 13, Lucky 13, we're going to be discussing the Foo Fighters 2011 album called wasting light now you might be asking why why the foo fighters if you don't know well bob mold uh mm-hmm. plays on a song on there called dear rosemary but i would argue and i'll get further into it you know in the episode that this was the start of a resurgence in aggressive rock bob yeah I, because you had okay. this yeah. He was touring with Foo Fighters. Yep. They did the Disney tribute to him. 
mm-hmm. and then we got Silver Age. So yeah. my take is this album is an important link between the life and times, Bob, and Silver Age. Yeah. Um, so listeners of this podcast are well aware that Greg and I are very old and dear friends. Um, if you want to listen to old and dear friends bicker with each other, please prepare for episode 13. Right, because one of us, we won't say who, one of us is a, is a fan of the record and one of us is not. And I'm sure there's actually a lot of people out there listening that are not fans of this record. And it'll be really fun. Yeah. And I'm excited. So stay tuned for that. that. Yeah. All right, everybody. Awesome. Well, that's it for this week. See you. See you next time. Is that an Oasis shirt? Yeah. Javier made it. Oh, that's awesome. Cool. uh, He does. He does. uh,